Would you like predictable monthly income with annual returns up to 15% or more? Norada Capital Management offers you the opportunity to invest in promissory notes with fixed rates of return and monthly direct deposits. We provide investors with an effortless way to diversify beyond other investment options like stocks and bonds and even real estate. Our promissory notes have a high rate of return and are 100% passive. Interest is paid monthly, directly into your account, delivering truly effortless income. Many other passive investments offer rates of return in the 4-6% to range. Our promissory notes have delivered fixed rates of return in the double digits since conception. All notes are in good standing and Norada has a no-default history and reputation. And retirement accounts such as self-directed IRAs and Roth IRAs also qualify for this investment. So if you're looking for an effortless investment with predictable monthly income and double-digit returns, then visit our website at noradacapital.com. Learn more at noradacapital.com today. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and today we've got what might be perceived as a boring topic, and that is about taxes. But remember that taxes are your biggest expense throughout your lifetime. So not only do you need to choose your income wisely, because your income, depending on how you generate it, will be taxed at different rates, but if you invest wisely, like with real estate, for example, you can have some of the best tax breaks available through the IRS code in the United States. See, the more you earn through your job or through your business, the more you're going to get taxed. But the system is actually set up in a way that actually punishes people who earn employment income. This is your W-9 and to some degree your 1099 income. But it is designed to reward business owners and investors. So real estate, rental real estate, income producing real estate falls in that I quadrant. And that's what all about investing. So wage income not only requires hard work, but it gets taxed at a very high rate. And on top of that, you have to pay what are known as FICA taxes, which have to do with your Medicare. And it's just not the best way to protect yourself from the taxes that will erode and eat away at every paycheck. So how do you protect yourself? Well, the best way is through rental real estate, income producing real estate. And why is that? Because it has many tax advantages, especially over wage income. So you've got these capital gains rates that on real estate caps out at 15%. Now that's assuming you've held the property for a minimum of 12 months, but you compare that 15% federal tax rate on the capital gains to the 35% or so that you would be charged on wage income. And there's a huge difference right then and there. And then on top of that, you have state taxes. And then on top of that, some states even have further discounts on those capital gains income. So it really adds up. And remember that capital gains requires that you hold the property for a minimum of 12 months. So this does not apply to flippers. So unfortunately, if you're wholesaling and flipping property, you lose out on this capital gain benefit. Now, there's also that 1031 exchange, which is basically a way for you to roll your profits over from one rental property into another and defer those taxes. And you could potentially defer them indefinitely. So your 
tax basis in doing so actually just rolls from one property to another to another. And this is the great thing about the 1031 exchange. It's a tax deferred exchange. Now, there are some rules you have to follow. You know, you have to close within 180 days and you have to identify those properties within 25 days. And we've actually talked about this in a previous episode not too long ago. So you can go back and listen to that to figure out, you know, how this all works. But Rental real estate, income real estate also provides you an interest deduction. You see, you get to actually deduct the interest you pay on your debt. And the beautiful thing about that is it lowers your taxable income. But then that leads into the next item, which is very exciting. One of the most incredible tax breaks or tax benefits in the tax code, and that is depreciation. You see, when it comes to rental properties, you get this phantom tax deduction for the quote wear and tear that happens to the property. So even if the property increases in value, guess what? You still get to deduct it over 27 and a half years with residential real estate. So you actually can have a tax break and make money, even though on paper you're showing a loss. So even though you're showing a complete loss on paper on your tax return, you're actually making and pocketing cash. And last but not least, if you structure it properly, you won't pay any FICA taxes. And that's really your self-employment tax withholding, which is 15.3% on the first $97,000 that you earn. And really, this is a Medicare withholding. And unfortunately, there's no way around it. But there are ways that you can structure your tax affairs where you can offset that or defer it or even just not pay it if you have the right entities in place. Anyway, I'm not a CPA or an attorney, and I'm not here to give you tax or legal advice. I just want to kind of just tee up this episode with our two guests, Amanda and Matt. And we'll get to that here in just 20 seconds. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. It's my pleasure to welcome Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland to the show. Amanda has over 18 years of experience as a CPA with a special emphasis in real estate, self-directed investing, and individual tax planning. Amanda has extensive public accounting experience with the big four firms servicing clients in the real estate industry. And with her is Matt, and Matt has over 20 years of experience in public accounting as a CPA and a tax strategist. He has worked for both the big four firms and regional CPA firms, and together they have co-authored the book on tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor. And they're also the principals of Keystone CPA. So with that, Amanda and Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Marco. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. I appreciate you guys being on the show. I know you guys are pretty sharp. You have a great reputation. I've been following your stuff for a while. So I guess towards the end, we'll provide contact information and whatnot for our listeners, because I think it would be great for them to uh, read your material, your website blog, and just further educate themselves, because education is so critically important. But I always love starting my episodes when I have a guest by asking them a simple question, and that's basically, how did you guys get involved in real estate investing? I think for me, uh, I did spend some time at a big four accounting firm, and I think my kind of first aha moment with real estate came when I was probably a couple years in reviewing an investor's tax return. You know, it's probably somebody who was in their 60s, you know, retired, but just 
had a bunch of properties. And when you kind of look at the tax churn, you know, you had back to depreciation like normal nerdy accountants do. And you kind of realize how much cash flow the guy was really making. It was just like a, you know, like a holy, you know, you know what? <laughs> so that was kind of the eye-opening experience for me. And then I left the big four, went to a smaller firm that focused a lot on real estate. And then kind of we had started Keystone CPA a few years after that. And it was just, it's just a natural fit that we like real estate. We invest in real estate ourselves and we understand it. It's, you know, like, you know, it's something you can tangible, you can put your hands on. And so for us, it's just a natural fit to focus on what we're good at, which is the tax strategies and emphasize the real estate side. Sure. For me, I'm actually the third generation of real estate investors in my family. So I've kind of grown up around real estate investing. I was one of those kids that was at a very young age, it's probably illegal for child labor laws, but my grandparents had me go into their apartments for turnovers. My cousins and I would go and help them repaint the property before the new tenants moved in. And like Matt, you know, I actually worked at the same accounting firm right after I out of college. And it's the same thing, you know, just just being able to see the wealth building as an accountant in terms of real estate investments and also what types of tax advantages that the government brings with all the real estate loopholes. Sure. Yeah. Once you realize the potential of real estate to help you create cash flow and get you out of the rat race, it just becomes an addictive thing. And if I'm not mistaken, Amanda, didn't you read rich dad, poor dad, and that kind of became a turning point for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had no idea what rich dad, poor dad was. Matt was actually the first person who read it. And after he read it, he this is when we were both still working full time. He turned to me, he said, you know, before the end of this year, and keep in mind, this was sometime in you know August during the year, he said, before the end of this year, we should buy some investment properties. And I honestly looked at him like he was crazy. No idea what he was talking about. I don't know why I, I myself would ever want to own real estate. But yeah, that is how kind of our first introduction. Into, and it's really strange to a lot of people, especially for someone like me who grew up around real estate, was a CPA, but even working one of the largest firms in the world, I didn't really put the two together in that something I should be doing for myself. You know, it was always something that only the clients did and the clients made money. I never thought that that was something that I should pursue. And it really was the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book that kind of opened both of our eyes into saying, yeah, this is something we can do as well. That is a brilliant book. And I recommend it to virtually everyone, even if they're seasoned real estate investors, because it gives you a mindset. It changes your mental perspective and makes you look at assets and cash flow and income and expenses a lot differently, at least a lot differently than most typical people are taught. And, and the problem is in our school system, a lot of people really aren't even taught to balance a checkbook. I mean, right. it's a common problem, I think, in most school systems. But you guys have your own book, you know, the book on tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor. It's a great book. I haven't finished reading it, to be completely honest with you. But I mm -hmm. did start reading it. And it's well written because it's very simple to understand. And it's easy to read. And early on in the book, you talk about what you don't know can hurt you. And it reminded me of a saying that I have. And I don't know if you want to try and answer this, but I've said it on our podcast here a number of times, but ignorance is blank. And what do you think most people say to that? Bliss, right? <laughs> exactly. A lot of people say ignorance is bliss. And I'm, you know, mm -hmm. kind of whacking my head and thinking, no, no, it's not. Ignorance is expensive. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say costly. <laughs> You're, you're spot on. Exactly. Ignorance is very expensive because what you don't know could actually cost you a lot. And so why don't you take a minute and tell us what you meant in the book when you talk about what you don't know can hurt you? Well, I think, you know, from a tax perspective, one of the biggest reasons, or I guess the most common reasons we see people miss 
on their tax returns is really as simple as not knowing what is a legitimate tax deduction. So that's kind of where the ignorance part comes in. And I, I think it's not really, you know, anyone's fault. I mean, the tax code is extremely complicated. And even as a CPA, you know, I think our model within the firm is, you know, we never claim to be an expert. You can never claim to be the expert in all things taxes. And so from a planning perspective, one of the main things that I always tell people, the way you take control of your taxes is to really start with a fundamental understanding of what are tax deductible items. And you know, it's not to say that as a regular taxpayer, not an accountant to know everything there is to know about deductions, but really starting with at least just the definition of what is a legitimate tax deduction. And generally, those are just, you know, really the IRS has two definitions, right? One, that it has to be ordinary, and two, it has to be necessary with respect to your real estate business. And so good practice that we tell our clients to do, or most investors, is when you're spending money on something, whether it's a computer or paper and supplies or taking a trip somewhere, always ask yourself, are these expenses I'm incurring, is it ordinary and necessary with respect to my real estate business? That is very well said. Obviously, we all want to pay less taxes. Some of us, some people, I should say, will pay up to 50% or more of their income in taxes. And you can verify this for me. But you know, everybody has a goal of paying less taxes because for many people, I think their biggest expense year after year and in life will be paying federal, state, and local taxes. So the more you can do to reduce that, the more you're going to keep in your pocket. It's a direct, I don't know how you guys call it in your lingo, but it goes directly to the bottom line, does it not? Oh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there was actually a survey that came out a couple of years ago where, and it's really eye-opening that the average American is spending more money on taxes than they do on food and clothing and shelter combined. So, you know, think about that for a second, that some of people's biggest items, they're spending more on taxes and those other things. So, you know, going back to the ignorance question, it, it is really important because not just knowing what you conduct, but also just planning ahead. I mean, it's so many times we remind our clients that, before you do a transaction, before you buy a property, sell a property, give us a call because you may not think it's a big deal. You may not think there's anything you can do. You may not even think it's a tax issue. But if you just made a you know a quick phone call or a quick email or something that we can identify something you're not thinking about, then maybe that ignorance becomes less costly to them you know, down the road. Right. You rely on your team, your professionals to avoid making mistakes and, and having the right CPA, the right attorney, the right real estate agent, the right property manager, all those people as part of your team will help you avoid landmines and pitfalls and make more money. And then of course, save more money and saving taxes is a way to, to cut your expenses and put more in your pocket. So if we were to frame this conversation, because I like this whole theme of how to pay less taxes from a very high level, and this is really a softball question for you guys, but just at a high level, what are the tax benefits of real estate investing? Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs, that's your key performance indicators, 
in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash realestate. That's netsuite.com slash realestate to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash real estate testing. I think one of the ways we like to look at, you know, if I guess first step is, you know, if you a lot of people like to compare it to other types of investments. So very common one, obviously, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. Well, one of the huge benefits of investing in rental properties is the depreciation deduction you get to get. You know, if you spend you buy a rental property for hundred thousand dollars you get to write off you know, a big, huge chunk of that purchase price over time. Whereas if you spend $100,000 on stocks, you don't write that $100,000 off until you actually sell the stock down the road. So you know, the other benefit is the cash flow that we're getting from real estate, right? So as you're getting cash flow in your pocket, if you're using depreciation and some of the other strategies that are out there to reduce your cash flow on paper, the goal is to get cash in your pocket, but have zero positive income on your tax return related to that rental property, if not even a loss that you might be able to utilize against other sources of income. So I know from our perspective, that's one of the huge benefits is appreciation. It's a Christmas gift that keeps on giving from the IRS, if, if you will. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, the, the fact that the IRS allows you to depreciate residential property over 27 and a half years, even though the property may be increasing in value, is incredible. It's The term it escapes me, but basically you don't have to spend a penny to get that deduction. It's a non-cash right. deduction, I think is what they call it. And it's what's really interesting about depreciation that sometimes people aren't very clear on is, you know, if, I mean, as a real estate investor, Marco, you know that one of the ways to supercharge wealth building is through leverage, right? So right. depreciation calculation is based on actually the purchase price of a property and not the cash amount that you invest. So in a very extreme example that Matt was talking about, let's say that I buy a, a rental property for $100,000 with no cash down, 100% leverage, my depreciation deduction is still calculated based on that $100,000 purchase price. So it's something that's you know very, very powerful. If you buy stock, there's not that ability generally to leverage as you have in real estate, you know, on top of the depreciation. I think something else that's really great about real estate investments is, you know, maybe for those investors who don't really have other sources of income, you know, maybe it's someone that's working a full-time job that's starting to do real estate on the side, whether through turnkey properties or just other passive investments. One of the greatest benefits of being an investor is that for the first time, you can legitimately turn some of these otherwise personal expenses into legitimate business deductions. And some of the most common ones, you know, that we see a lot would be maybe, you know, you start to use your car for real estate, right? Whether going to look at properties or meeting with realtors, going to deposit rent checks, going to local real estate meetings, all those things now become tax deductible to offset the rental income and potentially the W-2 income that you're earning. So it's a really great tool to kind of supercharge the deduction side of things. Yeah. So you bring up a great point. And then that's a good segue to the whole concept of running your own business. You know, the lovely thing about real estate is that you've got this powerful tool called leverage. So you can put zero down, you can put 20% down, but what you get is 100% of the benefits, 100% of the cash flow, 100% of the depreciation, 100% of everything. Right. And there's really no other asset class out there that you can do that. In fact, you can't even come close to what you can do with rental income producing real estate. So depreciation is huge. I think most people underplay how big of a benefit that can be. 
Well, yeah. And then if you combine that fact with the tax savings, so think about it another way is for every dollar that you're saving on taxes, assuming you're putting 25% down, that could equate to $4 of a new investment, right? Yep. So for every $25 you're saving, that's another $100 of rental property you can buy. So that's kind of what we help our clients focus on too, is that when you're saving the taxes, you can turn around and use that to reinvest and generate more cash flow and more wealth as you continue on in the cycle. Yeah, definitely. And and you mentioned this being a business and real estate is a business and should be treated as a business, which means now you have deductions. And I think the goal for most people is to maximize those deductions. So I don't know if it's harder to find what you can deduct versus what you can't deduct, but very few people ask the question, what can I not deduct? And is that a fair question to ask? And, and if so, what would be an example of that? <laughs> That's a good question. And I want to first just kind of clarify, I know we talked a little bit about the real estate business. And one of the most common myths out there is that I think a lot of taxpayers equate the term business to a legal entity. And so from time and time again, we'll come across investors who say, well, yes, I, you know, I know we can deduct business expenses, but I don't have an LLC yet. I owe my rentals, my personal name, or I just started doing real estate. And so I just want to clarify when we say business, real estate investing itself is a business activity. So for investors, you are generally getting the same deductions, whether you hold your rentals in an LLC, a corporation, or simply just in your personal name. So what is tax deductible? the IRS really looks to say, okay, if you're spending money on something, right, how can you substantiate that it is reasonable and necessary for your real estate business? I guess to go to an extreme example of what is and is not deductible, I guess for someone who owns rental real estate, is it reasonable to assume that they would go to local real estate meetings or they would take investors or brokers out to lunch and dinner and shows to try to raise money or to improve their real estate investment, right? Those are probably something that's going to be more reasonable. Gosh, to think of something that's unreasonable as a business deduction, I guess if, you know, I just took my five-year-old to Disneyland, just the two of us, that might be something that's unreasonable to say how that is actually helping out in my real estate business. Right. So it needs to be justified and it has to provide some sort of direct or maybe indirect benefit to the business, not just... In other words, I think the example I always think of is if you go on a trip, a business trip, and you happen to go and look at real estate while you're on your vacation, that doesn't necessarily qualify because the planning, the event itself was a vacation and you just happen right. to be looking at real estate, not the other way around. Right. Yeah. It really does need to be the other way around and, yeah. and you know, planning ahead, documenting, you know, making sure you've got meetings scheduled ahead of time, you've got correspondence. Mm-hmm. And then when you happen to go to I don't know, Disney World while you're in Florida looking at properties, I'd, so be it. But at least the trip, a majority of those expenses on the trip would be deductible at that point. Sure. And, and to your point, Amanda, it sounds like with people thinking that you need an entity in order to have a deduction, it's not just about the entity. It has more to do or a lot to do with the act or an event, not just the entity itself to be a deduction. Yeah, you're exactly right, Marco. And I think, you know, if we go through an example and say, okay, I formed an LLC this year for my rental properties. I took my son to Disneyland just the two of us, I use the LLC to pay for my Disneyland tickets, that does not make the trip deductible, right? On the other hand, I don't have any entities, but I bought a really wonderful tax book on bigger pockets that would still be a tax deduction, whether or not it was paid from my particular LLC, 
Right. So it is looking exactly at the expense itself and how does that relate to your real estate income activities. Sure. So on the theme of deductions, I don't know if this was last year or this year, but I think I read or heard somewhere that the rules for having a home office changed. And the reason I'm asking you this question is because a lot of real estate investors run their business from a home home office. They don't actually have an executive office suite. And especially here in Orange County, I mean, such a large percentage of our population here locally work from home. So they have these home offices. And I think there's some confusion on the home office rules that apply. Any comments on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question because there was actually an article that came out a, a few years ago that stated that about 50% of Americans actually have a home-based business of some kind now. So it's definitely relevant. It's out there. It used to be a audit flag when it first came out years ago, but when we actually ask that question a lot when we do speaking events, and people still think it's a audit flag to claim their home office. And believe it or not, there's still people out there that are, that's what they think. So, but yeah, the IRS is actually making it easier to take the home office deduction. So, you know, that's just another one of those strategies that gives you the the ability to convert what is usually non-deductible personal expenses into at least a percentage of those now becoming tax deductions. So as investors, we all know we can deduct our mortgage interest and property taxes on our primary residence, but it's that other stuff. It's the insurance, the utilities, repairs, maintenance, you know, HOA fees you might be paying monthly, security costs you might be paying. All that stuff kind of adds up. And like I said, it's usually non-deductible. So the home office gives people the ability to at least take a deduction for a percentage of that. And the way the IRS is making it easier, they're trying to, I think because it's time consuming for them maybe to audit it. So they made it easy where people can now take a flat standard deduction for the home office, if you will, where it's, it's a flat dollar amount. The maximum ends up at about 1500 bucks. But they also still give you the ability to do your regular calculation. And if the regular calculation adds up to more than 1500 you can take the greater of the two. But if your regular calculation would have been $500, but the standard deduction works out to be 1200 or 1500 you can still take that amount. So I think they're just trying to make it easier and simpler and less time consuming maybe for the taxpayer and the IRS auditor and maybe even hopefully the tax preparer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, one of the chapters in your book made me laugh. A large percentage of our clients are definitely in the passive real estate investing category. And that the reason for that is the big common denominator they have is time or lack thereof. And, right. you know, they have full-time jobs and careers. They have a family, they have obligations, and then they have their kids. And, you know, so their kids have piano lessons and soccer games and this and that. But your chapter is on how to write off your kids. And at first I thought, geez, that's not something I want to do. But but I'm thinking about it as a deduction now. So... Uh, <laughs> Right. We're not saying just write them out of your life. right? Exactly. So I had to read that twice. So just briefly speaking, how do you write your kids off? <laughs> so the technical term in the tax world is called income shifting, which probably sounds a little bit more polite than writing off your kids. But the concept of that is to be able to shift income from your higher tax bracket down to a lower tax bracket or maybe even a zero tax bracket for your kids. So a common question we get a lot is, you know, I, I spend a lot of money on my kids, right? My son has car payments that I pay for or football jerseys. And how can I write these off? You know, how can I make it a business deduction? And so generally, you know, if you want to buy a car for your kids or give them money to go to the movies, those are just personal expenses. And so the strategy is instead of just giving them money to pay for these things, that you hire them to help you out 
out in your real estate business. So maybe you have a teenager who's going to be helping you out with painting, right? Kind of like what I did with my grandparents, except I was actually not paid for those. But if you want to hire a kid to help you with make ready expenses, or maybe if you have a child who can help you with bookkeeping for your real estate properties, entering things into Excel, driving to deposit checks, if they're helping you out in your real estate business, then you could pay them a reasonable salary or amount for the pay and those become tax deductions. And the thought process for that on the side of the IRS is, you know, if I wasn't hiring my daughter to do my bookkeeping, I would have had to pay to hire someone else to do bookkeeping anyways, right? So that's a reasonable deduction. And so by doing so, if I pay my daughter to help me with bookkeeping, that's a business deduction to me. She can then use that money to go and use as allowance to go to the movies or pay for her car. Now, depending on her age and, and how much other income she has, it's possible that she would pay taxes on the money that we pay her. So it's something that we have to be careful of from a planning perspective is, you know, we don't just have hazardly say, hey, pay your kids and take a deduction, right? We have to actually run the numbers and figure out how much should we pay them so that we're as a family still getting more deductions than what the kids might be picking up in terms of taxable income. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know this or even understand it. So is there a minimum age that makes it legal and fits within the IRS regulations to qualify for that income shifting? <laughs> it's such a great question because I, you know, I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? So you think about those kids that are in diaper commercials, right? I right. Mean, <laughs> they're getting paid. You know, they're six months old, maybe a year old, two years old. So it is going to depend on what the work that you're doing. Now, obviously, we're not attorneys, but certain states are going to have their own child labor laws. So I think there's certain industries that, you know, kids can't work until they're a certain age. So, uh, you know, we tell people to check with their employment attorney or labor law attorney in their local state. But as a general rule, the IRS doesn't have a minimum age. They just want to make sure that the amount that they that you're paying them is reasonable for the work that they're doing. So Again, you know, kind of a, an extreme example, is it reasonable for your five-year-old to be your IT consultant? You know, yeah, probably not, right? Yeah. But maybe if a 12-year-old is better at computers than you or I are, that maybe that is reasonable, you know? <laughs> sure. So, so yeah, there's no minimum age. It just needs to be whatever you're paying them needs to be reasonable for the work that they're doing based on their skill set, obviously. All right. Yeah, I've never heard of a two-year-old getting a 1099 statement, so... Right. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, too, is just in today's demographics, income shifting, the, the most common example we use is with kids. But the reality is it really could be anyone that's related to you or even not related to you that you are maybe giving money to already, which would be non-deductible. And so in today's demographics, what we're seeing a lot is we have a higher population of aging parents. So, you know, if you're someone who's working in your real estate business, you have a mom or dad or both of them are, are now retired who have very little, if any, income. Those might be people that you can hire to help you out in the real estate business and you can shift income to them, right, in their lower tax brackets. We have clients who maybe have a significant other who's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, grandkids. All those types of people could be ideal for income shifting strategy. The one person that, for the most part, we don't recommend shifting income to would be to spouse. And that's because generally husband and wife would file either as married separate or married joint returns. So under a lot of circumstances, there's not really a benefit to income shifting between a spouse. But in some extraordinary circumstances, we do recommend income shifting between spouses, maybe in order to fund retirement accounts or take advantage of certain types of special tax deductions. Yeah. And plus, it's probably way out of the scope of this particular episode. But 
on the whole theme of income shifting, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be an entity. So there, there are probably ways to reduce your tax burden and defer it through income splitting with some of your legal entities, not just you know people in your household, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then there's income shifting between tax years. There's shifting, you know, you could be looking at you sell a rental property and pay tax or do you do a 1031 exchange and defer that tax for the next 10 or 15 years? So yeah, there's a lot of ways to utilize that strategy for sure. And this is why you shouldn't be your own attorney. And at the same time, you shouldn't be your own accountant or tax strategist. You need the right people on your team and people like you and and people who write books to educate people on this particular topic is so important because I think most people listening to this are probably paying more taxes than they should be, and they can certainly reduce it. So education is important, but having the right people to work with is also very important. So here's a question about legal entities, if I can throw this out, because we keep talking about legal entities. From a tax perspective, why do you guys suggest having a legal entity for your real estate? And and then maybe I'll throw in what type of legal entity is best? That's a really good question, Marco. And that's actually probably one of the most common ones we get from real estate investors. And it's a little bit tricky. So I think in answering that question, the first step is to divide real estate into two different types of businesses. Because um, I think a common misconception is, well, real estate is real estate. So whether I'm flipping, wholesaling, or doing rental real estate, it's all the same. I mean, that's actually incorrect. So under the IRS, real estate is really divided into two general buckets. One is the rental bucket. And rental really includes, you know, renting out single family, multifamily, commercial, self-storage, all those are under the rental bucket. And then the other big bucket would be the active real estate. And those are generally going to be, you know, fix and flip, wholesale, realtor commissions. Those are the ones that are defined as active because you are more likely to be actively involved in running the day-to-day operations. So starting from the more simpler side of it, which is the rental real estate. For rental real estate, actually, purely from a tax perspective, we don't really have a preference in terms of whether you hold your rental properties in an LLC or if you hold it directly in your personal name. Okay. And then the assumption, of course, is that this is just going to be long-term rental. The reason we don't have a preference of LLC or not is simply that you get the same tax deductions, the same benefits of depreciation, 1031 exchange, income shifting, writing off the expenses. You get all of those, whether you have it in an LLC or if you have it in your personal name. So really, you know, when you're talking to investors whose advisory team says, oh, we want rentals inside of an LLC, those are generally for asset protection reasons. The one thing when it comes to rental real estate that I will say from a tax perspective is that we generally do not recommend holding rental real estate in any kind of a corporation. And that would apply to C corporations or S corporations. And the reason for that is that, you know, if you are holding rentals inside of corporations, you may have unintended tax issues in the future if you were ever to transfer title of that property outside of an LLC or a C corporation. So those are kind of the general reasons and entities in terms of rentals. A caveat before we go any further on the active side, legal entities, just like any other tax strategy that we talk about today, are very taxpayer specific. So there's one thing that we like to say is there's not a one size fits all. So these are just kind of general broad strokes in terms of, you know, what type of entity makes sense for a particular investment or investor. 
And I think the other reason, you know, which is actually a non-tax reason that we look at or help our clients evaluate entity structuring for the rental properties is just from an asset protection standpoint. Now, again, they should consult with their own asset protection attorney, but the issue of if somebody slips and falls and they're going to sue the owner of the property, well, if the owner of the property is you personally, then theoretically, your personal assets might be a risk to that lawsuit. Whereas if the LLC owned the property, they sue the owner, which is the LLC, only the assets of the LLC might be a risk. You know, assuming there's a lot of assumptions there, but that's a general rule as to, you know, for that's another re- a big reason why people look at entity structuring for rentals. Mm-hmm. On the side of the uh, more active real estate that we talked about earlier, you know, commissions, fix and flip, wholesale, that type of stuff, there is a tax reason to sometimes operate those inside of a legal entity. For active income, and again, this is a very broad statement, but assuming someone doesn't have another job or other types of business income, all they're doing is active real estate. A lot of times what we look at is a LLC slash S corporation structure, and generally the benefit Benefit of that is to do what's considered, in, you know, one of the terms you used earlier, income splitting. So being able to take out some of the money as dividends, some of the money as payroll, essentially with the key goal of minimizing self-employment taxes from an entity perspective. Right. And that's huge. And I think that's where the S-Corp comes in handy. Yeah, and the S-Corp sometimes are gray. For other investors, sometimes a C-Corporation is gray. kind of depends on what their overall tax rate is going to be. But, you know, as, as a very general example, if you're someone who is flipping real estate, you made $100,000 this past year and you don't have any other type of income, you know, operating in an S-Corporation versus in your personal name could very well save you anywhere from four to $7,000 on average per year. So it is, it could be a fairly significant amount of tax savings for those involved in active real estate. Wow. I know there's exceptions to every rule, but as a general rule, I don't think it makes sense to do business of any kind as a sole proprietor. And you may disagree with me on this, but my personal feeling is that no matter what you're doing, if you're actively flipping property or wholesaling and you have a transactional business, or if you're a landlord, you own properties and you hold them in LLCs for asset protection, you always separate yourself as a person from your business endeavors. And this is why I'm not a believer in having anything in as a sole proprietorship. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the same way or am I off base on that? No, I think that's a really great point. I um, I will say those one of the most common mistakes we see are investors who form a legal entity in the understanding that they have asset protection, right. but then proceed to not use that entity and continue to maybe flip or, or get commissions in their personal name. And even you know, same with rental real estate. There's a large percentage of new investors that I talk to throughout the year that will tell me, oh, you know, I have these three or two entities, but title of my rental is still my personal name, you know, the rent checks are still coming to me. So it's it's very important to not just form the entities for asset protection reasons, but to really work with your attorney on how to make sure you're operating it in the way it was intended to be operated. Right. Yeah. Good point. So kind of wind it down or wind it up by talking about retirement accounts and funding your real estate using your retirement accounts, but maybe with a a tax perspective as a spin on this. The reason I like this topic is because there are trillions of dollars out there trapped. I like to say it's trapped in 401ks, IRAs, self-directed IRAs, and different types of retirement accounts. And I think some people really understand how to leverage that and use it properly. But my experience, most of the time when I talk to someone who's got funds in a retirement account, first of all, they don't even realize that they can self-direct it. And then when they do realize they can self-direct it, they really don't know what the benefits and the power is of of being able to do that. So I guess that's a matter of taking control, but how do people take advantage of their retirement accounts and how can they save in 
taxes by doing so. No, you bring up a great point. I, I would agree that I think a lot of people don't know that they not only can they self-direct, but it's just as a general rule, a lot of people don't know that they can use their retirement account to invest in real estate. I mean, this has been allowed for decades. So, you know, for probably a lot of huge majority of the people listening to this podcast, right? It's they understand real estate, they're interested in real estate. And so if you're looking at what you're going to, what are you going to invest your retirement money in? Well, why not invest in something that you understand and you know, and that you theoretically you can touch versus some of the other investments out there, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual fund, whatever it is. That's one of the things that we talk to our clients about is that if you do have a passion for real estate, then why not direct your retirement funds to investing in something that you at least understand and have an advantage on? Mm-hmm. I think the traditional brokerage firms and using retirement for real estate is just something that most people are familiar with. And so it's almost second nature for people to just default to leaving money in the stock market. But, you know, nine out of 10 clients that we speak with when we do tax planning, one of our questions is, you know, what's your retirement money invested in? And the follow up question is, are you happy with the return? So nine out of 10 times, the answer is no, they're not happy with the money in the in the stock market or mutual funds, but just not knowing how to really move that over. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. We've had clients who talk to their CPAs or their financial planner, or maybe their CPA is their financial planner. And a lot of times they're scared half to death because their advisors will tell them, well, you know, I don't recommend you you do self-directed investing. It's extremely risky or it's illegal. Or sometimes they've been told that if you were to move into real estate, you'd have to first pay taxes and penalties on that. And so, you know, all of those are unfortunately incorrect information that that's flowing you know out there to people who are looking to self-direct and the truth is that the IRS really doesn't have any preference in terms of whether your money is in the stock market or it's in a note investment or it's in a turnkey property, right? It doesn't matter to the IRS. As long as it's in a retirement account, that money should still continue to grow either tax deferred or tax free. So the key is that if you're someone who's thinking, gosh, I'm not happy with my money in the stock market or the mutual funds, then talk to your CPA or talk to an advisor who is familiar with self-directed investing and ask them, you know, how can I move money from the stocks and the mutual funds to self-directed investing on via a tax deferred or tax-free mechanism, right? And a lot of times the key term for that is using a rollover. So if you have IRA, you have 401k that's in the traditional accounts, what you can do is you can do a rollover, a direct rollover from Charles Schwab or Merrill Lynch into a self-directed custodian. And once it's at the custodian's account, then you can basically start shopping for investments. And so the way an investor is paying less in taxes is they're, in effect, deferring the taxes they would be paying today by funding their retirement account, then using those funds to acquire real estate, correct? Yeah, exactly. For the self-employed people people in, you know, in the real estate market, there's a lot more options in retirement accounts and just the annual traditional or Roth IRA. And so, yeah, what you said is exactly right. And we get a lot of, we talk to clients about it. We get a lot of pushback like, well, I don't want to necessarily put $20,000 in a retirement account because I want to use that money to go out and invest in real estate. Well, why not do both? Why not put the contribution and get a deduction for putting the contribution in and then turn around inside a retirement account and invest in real estate? So a very typical and a powerful example is, you know, somebody that's self-employed earning some sort of active income in the real estate market, whether it's fixed and flip, wholesales, syndication fees, that kind of thing. Or even a doctor who's earning income. Right, right. Yeah, even even somebody that's, they can take advantage of 
various retirement accounts out there, SEP IRAs, solo 401ks, whatever it might be, to really supercharge and, and build their retirement nest egg and still you know, get tax deductions for it and still invest in real estate. Yeah. And like you said, there are other very powerful vehicles to do that. We actually did an episode with Dimitri from Sense Financial, and we spent a fair amount of time talking about the solo 401k, which is just amazing because you can fund, I don't remember the number, close to $50,000 a year and defer your taxes on you know, a pretty significant amount. It's almost 10 times what you can put into, you know, a traditional IRA. And so not knowing that is where it goes back to the whole ignorance is expensive thing. You know, if you don't know these tools and vehicles are out there for you, you're missing out. You're paying too much in tax today and you're not going to have enough in returns to live off of tomorrow. So this is why it pays to educate yourself and to work with people like yourself and just other sharp advisors. Well, and think about it too, like you were saying, that $50,000 number, what if it's a husband and wife that could put a hundred grand in, you know, every year? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just, that just adds up and adds up. Yeah, very quickly. Absolutely. Well, guys, we can go on forever. There's just so much more material that we can cover as it relates to taxes and finance that it just seems to be an endless topic. So maybe what we should do is just plan to have you back on a future episode to go into some other topics, maybe something more seasonal. Anyway, having said all that, before you know, we give out your contact information and whatnot, is there any question that I didn't ask you that maybe I should have in today's episode? I think that one thing that I would kind of just like to share is when we talk about these different strategies and things you can do and and things that as investors we can learn about. One of the key things that I hope people take away is to really try to be proactive in the planning process. You know, if you're calling your CPA after you've sold the property for a huge gain, that might be too little too late. April 15th is the first time you're looking at last year's taxes. That might be a little bit too little too late. So the way that you get the best tax result is really keeping your tax advisor informed throughout the year. And we tell our clients, this all the time. You know, it doesn't always have to be a one, two hour discussion about, you know, everything there is to know about taxes, because I know not everyone is as passionate about taxes as we are. But it could be as simple as sending an email to your CPA saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about selling this property. or I'm thinking about moving out of California, right? I'm thinking of sending my daughter to college or I'm buying a rental property where my daughter is going to live in while she's at college. And so it's these little things that as life happens, if you keep your CPA informed, then they'll be able to help you with strategizing on, you know, what put potential things you could be doing before you actually do it to help reduce your taxable income. And I think from my perspective, the other thing is we kind of alluded to it earlier, but it's one size doesn't fit all. So you're listening to the podcast or, you know, I think Marco, you've probably been in these kind of events, these type of events too, where it's somebody's at the front of the stage yelling, you know, run to the back of the room and create these five companies or do this, do that, you know, and that might be good and all for somebody, but it's not necessarily going to be good and all for everybody. So whatever strategy you may hear today or you take away, this is not a do it yourself thing as you were talking about earlier. It's about your team. So go talk to your advisor about, hey, I heard about this. I heard about that. Does that work in my situation? If not, why not? And is there something I can do to tweak my fact pattern? Would it be beneficial to tweak my fact pattern to get it that way? That, those kind of things. So education is great. It's just making sure that utilizing your team to put it into action. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, guys. I mean, it's funny because today is November 8th, Tuesday. It's election day. And we're here talking about how to pay less in taxes. Interesting thing. <laughs> you know, the United States never had income taxes for the longest time. They imposed income taxes briefly during the Civil War and then in the 1890s. And then it wasn't until 1913 that the uh, U.S. tax code was put into place on a permanent basis. And coincidentally or ironically, that was exactly the same time that the Federal Reserve came into play. So no 
nobody likes to pay taxes. We all want to learn how to reduce our tax burden. And the smart way to do that is, again, work towards educating yourself and working with you know a team like yourself. So I want to thank you guys for your time. It's been very informative and, and I would love to have you guys back on if you are so inclined. Yeah, we'd love it. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to get your book, the book on tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor. Maybe you can tell everyone where they can get the book and how they can find out more about you guys. Sure. Our book is available on biggerpockets.com. I mean, it's also available on Amazon, Amazon online. So check out both of those resources. What I love about the book is we've given that book to a lot of our clients. And what happens is after our clients read the book, typically what they'll do is they will email me a very, very long list of questions, you know, that they get from reading this story and that story. And that's what we really hope that all readers will do. You know, again, I, I don't expect everyone to become CPAs or tax experts from the book. The book is really designed to help prompt questions for you and to open up that dialogue for you to have with your CPA. Our website is keystonecpa.com. And for those of you on the podcast that's never visited our website, I do encourage you to take a look. We have tons of free downloadable resources to check out as well as the latest in the tax world. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? No, that was uh, perfectly summed up. <laughs> Great. Well, in a closing thought for our listeners here, if you want to give yourself an instant pay raise today or this year, the best way to do that is to lower your taxes. So I like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's instant and it works and most people can do it. So anyway, you guys, I appreciate it, Amanda. Matt, thank you for your time. We'll get this out here shortly and uh, we'll have you back on the show in the near future. Sounds good. Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Marco. Thanks. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.